Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. We're excited to talk with a leader today who has shown incredible courage, resilience, and diplomacy in the face of danger and adversity. As a former clandestine human intelligence operative, U.S. Navy F.A. 18 Hornet pilot and national news television correspondent and anchor, our guest today has dedicated her life to the service of her country. She is the first person to serve as both a CIA-trained intelligence operative and a U.S. Navy fighter pilot while on active duty in the modern military. We're thrilled to welcome the former U.S. Special Envoy and Director of the Global Engagement Center, Leah Gabriel. Well, Leah, great to see you and welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. You know, Leah, you've had really an incredible career so far as a U.S. fighter pilot, a clandestine human intelligence operative. You've worked for the State Department. You've been a TV anchor. I mean, so many different things that I'm just really looking forward to hearing about. Before we start, talk a little bit about your journey and some of the things that led you to where you are today. Again, thanks for having me on. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about my own story. I think if I were to sum it up, it would be to say that my journey and my path has really been one of wanting to learn about myself and continue to grow and evolve as a human. And so I've chosen a lot of different paths in life that have helped me to become more well-rounded and that have helped me to grow and to become a stronger person. And I think a lot of that's just about my own personal journey. But I started out in a very, very patriotic family, lots of military service in my family. And I grew up just loving America and loving our country. I think that's one of the things people really know about me, if they know me, is that I love America and I'm very proud of our country. Being in service to our country has always been important to me from day one. So I went to the Naval Academy and you build a very strong foundation in leadership there. They teach you a lot about leadership. So if you take it on board, (laughs) then you have a lot to offer later on because they teach you a lot of principles. My service selected pilot and I became a single seat F-18 fighter pilot flying missions off of aircraft carriers in combat operations. I had the opportunity to go to a shore duty where I could go and serve at the Defense Intelligence Agency after I flew F-18s. And I thought that that would help to build me and make me more worldly and grow me to a point where I wasn't so much focused on tactical operations, but larger strategic operations and to develop a strategic picture of our defense capabilities. So I took the opportunity to go to Defense Intelligence Agency, working in foreign diplomacy. And then when I was there, I had a very unique opportunity where I was actually invited to go and train with the CIA. I went to the farm, which is where they train clandestine operatives. And I'm a graduate of that course. I went and I served in clandestine operations while still on active duty. I did that at a strategic level. And you know, there's a lot that I can't talk about there, but I also did it on a tactical level where I deployed with a very elite SEAL team in Afghanistan. And I was the human intelligence operative for that unit in Afghanistan. And it was during that time that I started having some real interest in helping people in our country better understand 
our government and the work we're doing, because I didn't feel like there were enough people who had worn the combat boots and been on the ground in places like Afghanistan and had been inside of the intelligence community who were informing our public about what we were doing. And so I became really passionate about news. I think that, you know, as a country, we really have to be better informed to make good decisions. And so I wanted to become part of that. And I think I also wanted to become part of it because as an individual, I wanted to continue building and growing myself. I wanted to develop more knowledge about our world, more understanding of politics, more understanding of how I could better present myself. And I really kind of considered going into television news a bit of a finishing school for me. It helped me to present. It softened up some of my rough edges that I had from you know, smelling like jet fuel and wearing combat boots and being deployed with SEALs in Afghanistan. And that was important to me as a human. I ended up spending almost 10 years in television news. I had a wonderful opportunity and wonderful experience. And it helped me to develop a better understanding of the big picture of our world. But I also found myself anchoring and reporting on business news. So it kind of expanded me out to better understand the economic picture of our country. Then later on in my career, I was asked by Secretary Pompeo to come and lead the Global Engagement Center at the U.S. Department of State. It's a little bit confusing what Global Engagement Center actually is. I was selected to be the U.S. Special Envoy for Global Engagement. And the Global Engagement Center leads the U.S. government's efforts to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation from state and non-state actors. So this is Russia, China, Iran, trying to undermine the U.S. by using disinformation and propaganda, as well as terrorist organizations trying to radicalize people online. And it was a really unique opportunity because I had this background that almost put me in a position to have all the right things to be able to lead that organization. It was growing, it was developing, it was a fledgling organization, and they needed somebody with strong leadership skills, but also somebody who understood how to do influence operations. Somebody who had a strong tech background because a lot of it's data science, AI, ML, understanding the online influence information space. And I had studied mechanical engineering in college. I have a strong tech background. I did science fairs growing up and you know, was really into science and tech. So I was able to kind of tap into all of the background that I had to come and lead this incredibly important organization for the U.S. Department of State. And I'll tell you, that was probably the most rewarding experience I've ever had. It seems like everything you had done really did set you up perfectly for that role at the State Department. What was it that made that the most meaningful thing that you've done? I think the reason it was the most rewarding is because it brought everything that I had done in my life, all those skills into play. I was building something and leading people who needed somebody to come in and empower them. And I think that was the biggest challenge was coming into an organization when you're trying to build within the government, it's very difficult. There's lots of different stakeholders that don't want to give up their position or to give what they would consider power away to a new organization that's building and growing, even if it's for the right reasons. And so it really challenged me for a couple of reasons. One, because just doing that is very difficult, but also because we were not in a very bipartisan environment. I was coming in as a political appointee and I had a team of people who were not necessarily on that same side of the aisle. And I had to build consensus on the Hill. I had to build support on the Hill. And I had to really empower my team so that they knew I was there to accomplish the mission and to empower all the very brilliant people that were working for me in that organization to accomplish our goals. And the reason it was ultimately the most rewarding is because of the feedback that I got from my team at the end. I truly think that you know you're leading well when you have a team that wants to follow you. And when they tell you thank you at the end, there's nothing in the world like it. So that's why it was so rewarding for me. 
So Leah, what did you learn about, you had people with polarized viewpoints, different points of view, you're trying to get people to work together. What did you learn in that experience about how to get people to be effective working together when they don't necessarily agree? This comes down to a lot of the principles that I learned in leadership, the foundational principles I learned at the Naval Academy, and quite frankly, through Dale Carnegie, you know, trying to understand the other person's perspective is one of the most critical things you can do when you're trying to build consensus. Nobody can hear you and what your perspective is until they feel like they've been heard and they feel like you understand and you respect their perspective. So in that particular situation, I kind of knew what I was up against coming in the door and I wanted to come in and listen first. And I wanted to show people respect that I respected who they were, their capabilities, their knowledge, their experience. And by doing that, it opens the door for them to listen to you. Good decision-making is critical in leadership. And sometimes you have to make unpopular decisions. But I think once you've made people feel heard and you can show that you understand, and then you can justify why you're making the decision you are, that's very helpful. And I think one example of that is I had a chief of staff who was brilliant. He's one of the people I respect most in this world, one of the smartest, most capable people, was a wonderful advisor to me. And I always, always looked to him when I had to make a tough decision and I wanted his opinion and his perspective. But I can remember a few times when we were 180 out on it and I listened to him and he had kind of talked to the rest of the people on the team, but my instincts were telling me that I had to go the other way. And I said to him, you know what? We're at this point where I have to go either your way or mine on this. And I don't think I quite put it that way, but it was either A or B, right? And you think it's A and I think it's B. And I said, and this is where I have to trust my instincts. And I think as a leader, when you do that, you take that decisive action. You've explained why you're making the decision. Not only will people be behind you, but you're going to have the passion for the decision that you made. Oftentimes there is no right decision. It's you have to make the best decision you can at the time when it's something that you believe in and you feel like you've heard all of the options and then you go for it, you're usually able to execute on it to support the mission of the team. So in that particular case, how did he respond once you said that? He was fantastic. You know, I think we both had different instincts on this, but I think it continued to build our relationship and our trust between us because he fully understood, okay, you're the person who's been designated as the leader here. And that's what I said to him. I said, you know, I was selected for this position because of my experience, my knowledge, and because of who I am today. And so while I fully understand and respect where you stand on this, in this particular situation, I've got to trust my instincts. And I hope you'll support that. And he, of course he did, you know, and it was great. I felt like I did that a lot with that particular team. I did my best to make sure people understood where I was coming from. But I think when they already know that you care about what they think, you care about them, you care about what motivates them and drives them about their personal needs, then they are much more receptive to the decisions that you make. So Leah, part of that is that you were a diplomat, you learned diplomatic skills have you had times where you felt like people may have been undermining you instead of being in this particular case, he came around and said, I understand. What about when people don't come around? Have you had those situations? I love that you asked that because I think being a good leader takes courage. And I think it means sometimes you have to punch a bully in the nose, as they say, and you have to recognize it when you see it. I avoid that at all costs. One of the ways that I like to handle the potential for people who are going to undermine me is I be as kind as I possibly can be and as thoughtful and as caring. But I also let people know that if you try to undermine me, the consequences are not going to be good. And I do that by protecting my team and letting them see how I handle those who would try to undermine my team. So I sort of set the tone that if you try to undermine my team, 
it's not going to be a good result for you because I'm quite a mama bear for my team. And that really helps because the team then sees, okay, I've seen that side. I want to be on the good side of this. I want to be on the team with her. But every once in a while, you're going to have somebody who's going to just keep pushing at you. And I think that's when you really have to listen to them and you have to kind of let them set their own trap. And eventually they will. I think that when people have the best intentions in mind and they're really going into things with sort of virtuous feelings and attitudes, that rises to the surface. And when people are not coming into a situation with good intentions, you can essentially let them tie themselves into knots and make it pretty apparent pretty quickly. I think going around and building consensus and when other people can see that you have the right intentions in mind and that you're doing things for the right reason, you build a support system and then you can really just kind of stand back and let others see that this person is just being nasty and they're just trying to undermine you and you can call it out. And I actually had that happen in this particular organization where there was a different organization within the government that had some power over us and I built the case. I just built the case. And then I eventually put it together in a nice little package. And I showed everyone the package and said, okay, here's what's happening. Here's this group that's trying to undermine us. This is how we're just going to move forward without them. And ultimately I had others within that organization that eventually came around and said, well, Hey, we want to work with you. And I said, great, let's come back into the fold. Let's do this. But I think it's really important, really important as a leader that people know that you're not going to be taken advantage of and that you're going to be decisive and you're going to protect your team. That has an impact in so many different ways. I mean, the culture, I'm sure you set by doing that. Number one, your team knew that you had their back and people always want to know that you care and you've got their back and so forth. And you also are willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. And then when it's clear that someone is working to undermine you, then that's a completely different situation. Yeah, it is. You know, I've had that experience quite a bit Part of it is, you know, going into the military as a woman, especially when I did, I was a minority that was new for me. And I love that I had the opportunity to be a minority in an organization or, you know, as I was growing in my career, but you do sometimes find people are trying to undermine you. And I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing is I've found myself in situations where I know somebody is straight up trying to be nasty to me. And I thought, you know, I can end this conversation now. I can think of something snappy to say back. But do I want to win the battle or do I want to win the war? You know, the whole, is this the hill you want to die on? And so one of the things that I've learned to do is sometimes I really enjoy when I'm sitting there in those situations, assessing the person, thinking about what's causing them to act like this right now and figuring out what it's going to take to actually turn the situation around. I actually had uh, one gentleman who I know was absolutely trying to make me feel bad. He was setting up a pretty nasty conversation. And I thought about saying, you know, I've got an important call to take. So I'm going to have to leave now. And I thought, you know what? I would much rather win this person over and it'll be a fun little experiment to me to see if I can do it. And he got to a point where he said, you know, Leah, you're hard not to like. And I said, but you sure tried, didn't you? And we laughed about it and moved on and ended up having a nice warm relationship. So there's oftentimes a way to get to the human inside of whoever it is that's being not the nicest, that if you can just get to that human side and you can somehow reach it, you can still build those relationships. I think people are generally good. And if you can find that goodness in them, it's always the best way to move forward. Well, that's right. And if you have that mindset and you're looking for the goodness, it makes it a lot easier. The opposite is true too. And it's what we assume about people. If we don't assume the best, then we can always find problems. I found also like you, it's better to assume the best, look for the best. One of the things you talked about were, I mean, maybe even some of the challenges you had in the military. You were a, a female fighter pilot. You were in the U.S. Naval Academy. What were some of the obstacles that you faced and how did you overcome those? 
Yeah. I mean, there's so many, and it's not just because I was a woman, it's because being in the military as a young person is challenging. I have met so many young people who I thought, you know, you would be a great fighter pilot, or you would be a great SEAL, you would be a great logistics officer in the military. And the military can really grow you and develop you and teach you so much. I mean, I'm so grateful for the time that I had in service, but I've heard so many young people say to me, well, oh no, I just can't be told what to do. Right. And so even that's challenging being 18, 19 years old and choosing to put yourself in a position where you are the lowest rung on the totem pole and where people get to tell you what to do. It's very humbling, but I think that that's really important to humble yourself in life and to put yourself in those positions. I think one of the things that was very challenging to me right off the bat is that I had always been a leader growing up and it is that people had put me in positions to lead. You know, when I was in third grade, others in my third grade class nominated me to be the president of the class. And I was honored by that. That kind of thing had happened to me while I was growing up. And then I go to the Naval Academy. I'm a minority there. And I found that when I went to assert myself, the crowd kind of wanted to hit me over the head and push me down. And so I learned about leadership. You have to know how others view you when you're trying to lead them. You have to understand that you have to adapt to the room that you're in. And so I learned that if I wanted to lead in the military, in that environment, I had to be much more of a listener. I had to start by just being part of the team, showing everyone in the room that I was just there to be part of the team, listening. And then the opportunity to lead often came when you had two very alpha people who both wanted to be in charge and they had differing opinions for what should be done. And then you could step in and say, or I could step in and say, you know, so-and-so you said this, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So-and-so you said this, it sounds like they're different, but actually here's where I think we can use both of your ideas and build something that's going to work. And you find yourself leading when nobody really put you in a position to lead. And I think sometimes sort of that more quiet, receptive, I'm here to be part of the team and build the team and then helping people come together is the way that you lead. And I learned that at the Naval Academy, being a woman there. And I don't think I would have learned that lesson had I not gone and put myself in a situation where I was not in a position that other people wanted to necessarily just put me in a position to lead. It's interesting, Leah, listening to what you've just said. A lot of times we talk about taking command. This is a take command podcast. Sometimes people can confuse that with just taking action, being forceful and so forth. What I heard you say is, hey, taking command for me meant taking a step back and really yeah. listening. Yeah. And then, you know, really kind of being involved in that conversation at the appropriate time versus just trying to talk all the time or be heard. You really tried to listen first. There's many different scenarios you can be in for leadership. And I think two that I'll just talk about here. One is where you are a designated leader, right? And the other is where there's no defined leader, but you want to rise to a position of leadership. And it's different. In those positions where you want to rise to a position of leadership, I think listening, understanding the room, reading the team is really important so that you can figure out how do I be helpful? And when you find ways to be helpful, you start to lead. When you are designated as a leader, I think sometimes people have the tendency to think that they need to come in and show that they're in charge and assert themselves right away. And that's fine if you're the expert in the room, but you need to know when you're not the expert in the room. And when you're designated as a leader and you're not the expert, I think it's really important. And I think it's completely okay to walk in and say, Hey, I am your new special envoy, or I'm your new leader. And you guys have been doing this for a couple of years. I really just want to learn what you're doing. I want to understand why you're doing what you're doing. I want to see your strategy. And I'm just going to listen for a little while and just understand how you're doing things and why. 
and then see if there's a way that I can add value. And I think people respect that, you know, you will have those who want to undermine you. And that's why you set the tone early that you don't want to cross that line. But I think people really appreciate it when you come in with that attitude and it makes them want to follow you. And I think that that is the most important part of leadership is being a person that others want to follow because they know you care about them. They know that you care about the mission and they know that your heart is in the right place to absolutely do the best for the team and the mission. Well, and to do that goes back to something you said a little while ago too. It sounds like you really have to humble yourself. To use the example you just gave, you could come in as the person with all the answers, with all the solutions, and that sets a certain tone and people respond to that. What I heard from you was, hey, when you come in and you say, look, I don't have all the answers, I'd like to learn from you. What do you have to say? That humility is really, in some cases, maybe even ironically, people don't necessarily think about humility always with leadership, but that's what I hear you saying is that humility is a really important part of your leadership. I think it is. I think it's critical for leadership and I think it's critical for human growth. You know, for me, one of my goals in life is to continue to evolve. I think a lot of us get to where we're, you know, somewhere in our forties and we're pretty set for who we are and it's hard to keep growing. And I think humility is the key to growth. I think continuing to try to understand yourself and to understand how you can be better and how people perceive you is key to growth. And for me, that's going to be a lifetime goal. Even right in the beginning of the interview, you talked about your desire to grow and you're talking about it right now. Where does that come from for you? Have you always had a desire to grow? I think I always have had a desire to grow. I think it started out with wanting to prove myself to myself. You know, why did I fly a single seat F-18s? Quite frankly, I think it would have been very helpful to have another person in the plane with me, but I think I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it on my own. I think I wanted to prove to myself sort of who I was as a human. And I think I wanted other people to see it as well. I didn't want people to question, was the person in the backseat flying the plane for her or was she the one doing it? I wanted people to know, no, this is who I am and I stand on my own. So that was part of my growth. As you get older and you want to be a stronger leader, I think it's continuing to learn about yourself, learn what your strengths and your weaknesses are and improve yourself where you're weak, but also really focus on your strengths and how you can improve the world that you are in through those strengths. So I think that is just kind of part of who I am, but I think it's also because I've fallen on my face at times. I had people treat me harshly. I have been beat down. The poem Invictus comes to mind. My head is bloody, but unbowed, you know, because I think if you believe in yourself and you have strong intrinsic values, then you can take some of those beatings and you go, you know what, I'm going to be a better person from this. And I'm just going to continue to press forward and grow. And I think the individual journey is about that self-growth. Within that self-growth, there's the idea of this confidence. I mean, so when you talk about getting beaten down and so forth, how have you continued to be confident? What's the source of that confidence? The key between somebody who builds confidence through adversity and through failure, quite frankly, and somebody who doesn't is all in the decision that they make in their mind when it happens. You know, you can decide to fall to be a victim and you can decide to stay on the ground when you've been knocked down, or you can decide to go, wow, I just got schwacked. Uh, Okay. What happened there? And you can kind of laugh about it a little bit. And you can get back on your feet and just keep pressing forward and learn from it and let it make you a better human. I think that if you never fail, it is because you are not reaching high enough. It is because you are not pushing your own limits. And I very much believe in pushing my limits. I like being scared. I like doing things that I'm afraid of. And I think that courage is like a muscle. It only grows and builds if you continue to work it and flex it. And so I truly believe that you've got to reach for things that are outside of your reach and you got to have that confidence to go for it. 
And then when you miss, you kind of got to laugh at yourself and go, okay, well, that was a bit ridiculous, but hey, look what I learned from it. And look how much farther I've come because I reached so high and then just keep going. I recently was talking to a little boy who has a lot of anxiety and he was talking about this anxiety and he wants to be a fighter pilot someday. And I said to him, next time you feel that, instead of fighting it, invite it in, embrace that anxiety, examine it, start thinking about what it's doing to your body and paying attention to how your breath feels, you know, how your legs feel. Do they feel like jello? Do you feel like you can't get air in and just examine it and realize that this is a very fascinating thing that's happening to you because if you can examine it and you can understand it, it takes the power of the anxiety away and it empowers you to be able to control it better. And I think that that's what we kind of have to do as humans is we have to learn from our failures, continue growing, examine the life that we're leading and see how we can live it better. It's awesome. And the advice you gave that young boy was awesome because I think sometimes we would have a fear, we would have anxiety, we'd want to pretend it doesn't exist or try to shout it down. I've found like you, Leah, that really confronting it and understanding it and talking to it almost is a way to really overcome it. I think one of the most important things that I want people to know when young people ask me for advice and they want to know how I've achieved what I have is that we're human. I have known some of the most successful people in the world, generals that are running the war, <laughs> you know, people who have been the president of the United States. I have met some of the most powerful people on earth. Every single one of us is just a human. None of us have all the right answers. And every single one of us feels hurt at times. We feel weak at times. And those are the times when the people we're leading need to look to us and see strength. I think the first time I learned that was in survival school. When you go through military training and you become a pilot, they send you to survival school so that if you have to eject from your aircraft, you can survive off the land. And they also put you in a little POW camp so that you can see what it's like in that kind of situation. So in survival school, I had a group of about 12 people and I was designated as the team leader. And you are out in the wilderness. There's really nothing to eat because the class ahead of you has kind of picked everything off the land and you don't have really time to catch little animals that are running around because you're trying to get to an objective. And you have people who are hungry, they're tired, they're stressed. And that's the whole situation they're trying to create, the instructor trying to create for you. And in the meantime, they have propaganda. Literally, you can hear voices through megaphones in the forest saying, you know, turn yourselves in and we'll give you warm blankets and food. So you have all this kind of stuff going on. And as a leader on that team, I was beat down. I was exhausted. I was tired. And I had somebody who had been in the military longer than me, was several years older than me, who wanted to literally turn himself in. And I had to be the one to be strong and be like, guys, let's keep going, even though I didn't feel it myself. And I think those are the times that you really test yourself as a leader when you are feeling down, when you are feeling weak and you know that you have to give a strong face to your team, that's when you really learn about yourself and that's when you really grow. And I just want people who are trying to become better leaders and who are trying to, to grow themselves to understand that every single one of us is facing some of those difficult, challenging times. And when you push through it, you're growing that courage and you're growing that strength that's gonna help you be better going forward. I've got to ask though, how did you do that in that moment? You're hungry, you're tired, you're beaten down. You've got your teammates saying, let's just turn ourselves in. Where did you find that source of strength? So I think a lot of it is what I learned in the military. They tell you to just suck it up. And so I kept telling myself, you've got to just suck it up. When you're the designated leader in a situation like that, you know that people just naturally, psychologically are looking at you. And if you crack, then 
it's going to make it that much harder for them to keep moving forward as well. So, you know, you can't because you have to do it for your team. You have people who rely on you. And the other thing that I did is I also relied on the people who I had gone through flight school with that I was close with. One of them, Nathan White, was my uh, wingman in flight school. Nathan, sadly, was killed in combat operations, but he's one of the people I admire most in this world. And he was there to just be a support system, and he asked me what I needed. And I said, I need you to be the tail end, Charlie, to make sure nobody strays from the pack and gather some leaves and stuff as you go, but basically make sure that we don't lose a member of our pack if you can just do that. And then there was another guy, his last name was Roy. I think it was Lieutenant Roy. And he was basically my XO. And I'd pull him aside and I'd be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think we should do? And so we would work together. So I had a few people that I knew had the strength to kind of help me when I was feeling weak. But I knew I had to keep a strong face because if I showed a little crack in that armor, it would have cracked everyone's armor. We need to have people that we can turn to and rely upon when we're weak, right? I mean, people who can help build us up. Absolutely. I think that that's critical. And knowing who those people are that you can trust is really important. I talked about my chief of staff at the Global Engagement Center, and he was certainly kind of like Nathan White or like my exo Rob back in SEER school, where, you know, when I had those moments where I was unsure, I could say to him, hey, what do you think? And then, you know, take decisive action. But I think one of the other really important things that people need to know when they're developing their leadership skills is what I said before, which is oftentimes there's no right answer. It's being decisive. It's making a decision. It's taking everything in, understanding that we're human, we're not perfect, and that we might be wrong, but making the best decision we can with the information that we have and making that decision. And I think that's really the difference between a leader and a manager. You know, Leaders will make those tough decisions. They'll be decisive and they'll move forward. And it's okay sometimes to get partway through the decision and go, okay, this isn't working. Let's try something different, right? But, you know, I go back to flying airplanes and if you're taken off from the runway and something goes wrong, the worst thing you can do is go, I'm going to abort. No, I'm going to take off. No, I'm going to abort. No, I'm going to take off. Next thing you know, you're crashing into the trees at the end of the runway. You got to make a decision. I'm going to abort or I'm going to take off and figure this out in the air. And I think a lot of times it's just making that decision and then figuring out what you need to do next. It's funny because that quality of decisiveness seems like it is one of the most important, if not the most important, in leadership. And many times people are afraid. They're afraid to make a decision. They're afraid, what if I'm wrong? Perfectionism can jump in and that type of thing. So you were also in the CIA. And I know there's probably things you can't talk about with that. But what led you to be a part of the CIA? And what are some things that you learned about leadership in that role? So I was CIA trained intelligence operative. I was actually with the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, but I was one of the very few people in the military who went through the farm with the CIA. So I was in my little group that I went through training with, I was the only military person on active duty in that little group. Like you said, I can't talk a lot about the details of what we did and what we learned, but I will say it's really a lot about learning about people and understanding what makes them tick and understanding how to build relationships is critical to doing intelligence work because ultimately what you're trying to do is have other people help to accomplish, to gather the information that we need as a country to protect and defend ourselves. And so you're asking people to do dangerous things sometimes, and you need to make sure that what they're doing falls in line with their intrinsic values. Without going into too much detail, I just learned a lot about really trying to understand the person who's sitting across from me in any situation 
and really trying to see the world from their perspective, which goes right back to the Dale Carnegie principles of trying to understand the other person's point of view. And one other principle that I'll talk about is not criticizing others. I think we as humans, when we get mad or we feel maybe injured ourselves or we feel vulnerable, I think one of the things that's very natural to do is to kind of want to lash out. And I think it's the worst thing you can do. And I love that Carnegie puts that principle right out there at the top to not criticize others, because once you do it, you've kind of ended your opportunity to connect with them and to work with them. So seeing the world from the other person's point of view is one of the most critical things that I really practiced in my time working in human intelligence. Well, it's great to hear about how that came into play in so many different roles that you've had. You've talked about that as a part of your leadership. I also know that you are very familiar with Dale Carnegie in general. Your brother's a Dale Carnegie trainer. What are some other ways that maybe the Dale Carnegie principles may have been impactful in other parts of your career? Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning my brother, Brett Potts. He's probably one of the people that I learn leadership from the most. You know, I've learned that when I have an incredible team, I want to empower the people on my team. And if I think they're better at something than me, I want to empower them to be in a position to do it. And I think it's challenging to do that as a leader because oftentimes it's human to feel threatened by somebody who might be better than you. But I've really learned that you empower those people and it improves the entire capability of the team and the mission. And my brother really taught me that because my brother is the guy who would go out and cut down the trees to the forest and then cheer for me as I ran through it to get to the goal, right? He's incredible and I'm so proud of him and he's taught me so much. Other Dale Carnegie principles, learning to present and to speak. Dale Carnegie does a lot for people in terms of helping them to learn how to present and to speak publicly. I think that it's really important as a leader to have that kind of polish. And you get that kind of polish through practice. I started calling my brother when I was in television news and I started being asked to present a lot and to give speeches, motivational speeches. And I thought, it's funny that people think that I'm ready to go talk in front of 3,000 people when I'm only talking to a camera. There's one camera in front of me. And all of a sudden, I'm supposed to go and impact 3,000 people was the largest audience I remember having. He helped me to learn about getting up there and being human, taking a beat when you need it, connecting with your audience, taking the time to read your audience, because the last thing anybody wants is for you to get up and just read a speech. They want to feel connected to you. They want to feel like they're having a conversation with you. And I learned a lot through my brother and through Dale Carnegie about telling stories that people will understand, that people can connect with and making a point through that story and giving a learning point through the stories that you are able to tell. And telling those stories oftentimes kind of takes you off the nervous point that you might be on when you have to get up in front of a group. Because once you start telling a story, you're in that moment it eases things up for you. So that's something that I learned from Dale Carnegie. That's great. Being able to tell stories is a great way to be confident in speaking. And it's also a great way to connect with people. I have to ask you, I know after your work in the Navy and as a fighter pilot and some of the other things you were doing, you went to the New York Film Academy. Now that was completely different than anything else you had done before that. What led you to want to go in that direction with your career? Something was leading me to wanting to better inform the public about what was happening within the government, what was happening in the military, what it was like to be part of the intelligence community. I felt like there were too many people in television news or in journalism who didn't actually have the experience from living inside the world that they were reporting on, from being in the arena and then talking about it. So I became passionate about the idea of getting involved in television news. And it is very difficult to break into. You know, I was told 
it's impossible. You're in your thirties. You needed to go to journalism school. You needed to start in a little tiny market and work your way from tiny market to tiny market. I had lots and lots of naysayers, but I studied the industry and I figured out that at the time there was a need for people who could shoot, write, edit, and report. So it's figuring out in the industry where I could add value. And I thought, I'm going to go find a school that teaches me backpack journalism because that'll get me in the door. And the reason I chose the New York Film Academy is that there are a lot of for-profit schools out there that will trick you into thinking that it's a really good school. They'll audition you so that you feel like you're so special for having gotten in. But I would ask these schools, who can I see on television that graduated from your program? And they couldn't answer that, you know, or I would ask them if they had any programs to support veterans. And it didn't feel very genuine if they didn't have anything to support people who had served their country. So I came across the New York Film Academy and they were in affiliation with a major news network. And so I called and I said, well, what is the affiliation? And they said, well, the instructor is a senior producer at this particular, it was actually NBC. And I thought, you know what? That's going to allow me the opportunity to meet somebody who is at a high level within a desirable network. And so this sounds like it's going to give me all the tools I need, and it's going to give me the interaction with a person who could potentially get me in the door. And so for me, when I went to the New York Film Academy, my goal was to learn as much as I possibly could. I actually don't think I've ever worked harder in my life than I did during that program, because I just tried to get the most out of every single thing that I did. And I beat myself into a pulp doing it. But for me, it was also an interview process. And that instructor didn't know that, but that instructor ultimately put me in touch with people who got me in the door for television news. It was a networking plus learning skills program for me. Such an impressive career, Leah. As you look back at the entire career, was there one particular time that was a defining moment for you? Huh. I think that one of the most defining moments was when I was deployed flying F-18s on USS George Washington, we had a pilot who crashed and who died while we were on deployment. It was already quite frankly scary. Every time you had to launch off the aircraft carrier at night, you know, it's that moment where you have to commit, where you've done your briefing, you've talked about what you're going to do. You've pre-flighted the jet. You've got your gear on, you're in it. You've run up all your systems and you're sitting there on the cat and you make that commitment where you give the thumbs up and the salute at night, you turn your lights on and you let everyone know, launch me. And it is every single time it takes courage to do it. And, you know, there are fighter pilots who will say, oh, it's no big deal. I'm sorry. I just don't believe it. Every single time, especially when you've had somebody that you respect, who was an outstanding pilot die on deployment. So for me, I think that's when I really realized who I was as a human. I realized that courage is something that's important to me. And I realized that every single time I had the opportunity to challenge myself and to push myself forward, I needed to do it. And that has helped me to get through a lot of things that scare me. You realize when you're in those moments that you're only as good as the last time you were challenged and you want to be better every single time. The courage you brought has certainly enabled you to grow and to achieve amazing things in your career. There's a great quote that do the things you fear and the death of fear is certain. And certainly you embody that. As you look at the years ahead, if you go out three, five, 10 years, what excites you the most about the future? So I think what excites me the most about the future is that I feel like I'm at a position in life right now where I have a lot of choices. And that's another thing that I talk to young people about is build yourself, work hard, learn as much as you can and push yourself while you're young because it creates a lot of opportunity and a lot of choices. 
So right now I'm excited about the capabilities that I have built within myself as a human and what I can offer to the next organization that I serve with or the next team that I lead. I think that just continuing to evolve and to grow is important. I love pushing myself and I think I'll be doing that long into the future. Well, I can't wait to see what the future holds for you, Leah. Any final advice for our listeners? I would just say, know that every single one of us is human and that the greatest leaders are also challenged in the way that you're challenged. Because I know that every person listening to this has their own challenges, those things that want to pull them down, that want to harm them or prevent them from reaching their full potential. And I think it's important to know that we all have that and that you grow as a human and you become stronger and more courageous every time you push through it. So just keep pushing on, trust yourself, work hard to develop instincts, because then you'll eventually get to a point where you trust your instincts. When you see those opportunities and your instincts are telling you to go for it, dive through that window because there's no telling what incredible thing you might find on the other side. Inspiring advice. I know it'll mean a lot to our listeners. Thank you so much for being with me today, Leah. Really a great interview. Thanks for having me, Joe. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.